This is Space Time, Series 26, Episode 125, for broadcast on the 18th of October, 2023. Coming up on Space Time. Carbon and water discovered in samples from the asteroid Bennu. Astronomers witness worlds colliding. And Spain reaches for the stars with its first successful domestic rocket launch. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. An initial examination of the regular samples returned to Earth from the asteroid Bennu by the OSIRIS-REx mission are showing evidence of high carbon content and water. The OSIRIS-REx sample return capsule landed right on target in the Utah military test range near Salt Lake City following a seven-year 6.21 billion kilometre return voyage from the half-kilometre wide near-Earth asteroid Bennu. Preliminary examinations of the 4.5 billion-year-old C-type asteroid show evidence of high carbon content in water, which together could indicate the building blocks of life on Earth may be found in the rock. Although more work's needed to fully understand the nature of the carbon compounds found, the initial discovery all bodes well for the analysis of future asteroid samples. The secrets held within the rocks and dust from this asteroid will be studied for decades to come, offering insights into how our solar system was formed, how the precursor materials of life may have been seeded on Earth, and what precautions need to be taken to avoid potential asteroid collisions with our home planet in the future. The mission collected over 60 grams of regolith from the ancient asteroid's rocky boulder-strewn surface. Curation experts at NASA's Johnson Space Center, working in new clean rooms built especially for the mission, have spent 10 days so far carefully disassembling the sample return hardware to obtain a glimpse of the bulk samples within. And when the science canister lid was first opened, scientists discovered bonus asteroid material covering the outside of the collector head, canister lid and the base. In fact, there was so much extra material, it slowed down the careful process of collecting and containing the primary sample material. Collecting images from a scanning electron microscope, infrared measurements, X-ray diffraction and chemical element analysis. X-ray computer tomography was also used to produce a 3D computer model of one of the particles, highlighting its diverse interior. This early glimpse provided the evidence of abundant carbon and water in the sample. Cyrus Rex Principal Investigator Dante Loretta from the University of Arizona, Tucson, says that as they peered deep into the ancient secrets preserved in the dust and rock of asteroid Bennu, they're unlocking a time capsule that offers profound insights into the very origins of the solar system. The bounty of carbon-rich material and the abundant presence of water-bearing clay minerals are just the tip of the cosmic iceberg. These discoveries are propelling scientists on a journey not just to understand the celestial neighbourhood, but also the potential for life's beginnings. For the next two years, the mission's science team will continue characterising the samples and conduct the analysis needed to meet the mission's science goals. NASA will preserve at least 70% of the samples at Johnson for future research by scientists worldwide, including future generations of scientists. 
As part of the OSIRIS-REx Science Program, a cohort of more than 200 scientists from around the world, including Australia, will be given samples to explore the regolith's properties. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says the OSIRIS-REx samples represent the biggest carbon-rich asteroid samples ever delivered to Earth and will help scientists investigate the origins of life on our planet for generations to come. So the first analysis shows samples that contain abundant water in the form of hydrated clay minerals, and they contain carbon as both minerals and organic molecules. And at nearly 5% carbon by weight, carbon being the central element of life, far exceeding our goal of 60 grams, this is the biggest carbon-rich asteroid sample ever returned to Earth. The carbon and water molecules are exactly the kinds of material that we wanted to find. They are crucial elements in the formation of our own planet. And they're going to help us determine the origin of elements that could have led to life. And I mentioned that one of our missions, it's actually in statute, is to look for life. That's why we're digging on Mars. That's why we go out into the far regions of the very beginning, uh, returning, uh, capturing light from the formation of the first galaxies with James Webb. Now we're looking at this and what you're seeing today, there's so much more to learn and there's so much more now that we have this sample uh, to analyze. And why are we doing this? Because at NASA, we are trying to find out who we are, what we are, where we came from, what is our place in this vastness called the universe. And this mission will help our scientists investigate planet formation for generations to come. And it's going to deepen our understanding of our solar system. And it's going to improve our understanding of asteroids that could threaten us here on Earth, helping us protect our planet. And oh, by the way, do you remember DART? We intercepted it at 7 million miles away, and it was bullseye. And we moved the trajectory of that asteroid. So this sample return is proof, again, that NASA does big things, things that inspire us and unite us. NASA brings us together in unity and things that show that nothing is beyond our reach when we work together. So now I want to take you to the curation lab here at JSC, where a team of scientists are hard at work since the sample arrived just two weeks ago. Thank you, Administrator Nelson. Now, I know you're all ready to learn more about this sample, and I am here with someone who can make that all happen. I am joined today by NASA's OSIRIS-REx curation lead, Dr. Nicole Lunning, and we are standing just outside of the OSIRIS-REx pristine curation clean room. Nicole, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about where we're standing right now? Yeah, thank you, Courtney. So we're in front of the newest curation lab in historic Building 31, which is home to the largest collection of astro materials in the world. 
Now the world just got its first look at this gorgeous sample. Can you tell us about how the curation process has been going so far? Yeah, it's been incredible so far. On Sunday, September 24th, the sample return capsule landed safely in Utah, and then it was brought to a temporary clean room that we had set up there um, to have certain parts removed, specifically the heat shield and back shell, which are two large parts, and that um, exposed the sample canister inside, which a nitrogen flow or purge was attached to to protect the sample. And then with that nitrogen flow attached, the next day, Monday, September 25th, it was flown from Utah to Ellington Air Force Base and brought here to Building 31, where we are now. And it was safely brought into one of our large glove boxes behind us um, that first day. The next day, um, our team was able to remove the canister lid, and that gave us our first glimpse of the tag sam head, but also a surprise in that there was sample outside of the tag sam head within that sample canister. Um, that was kind of an extra or bonus sample for us. So you mentioned that bonus sample. What have the initial findings been for the curation team? Yeah, it's a combination of fine dust as well as some what we call intermediate sized particles, particles that are roughly the size of the short width of a grain of rice, um, which we've carefully collected and also have already allocated some to the science team, the sample analysis team. And of course, this is not just a NASA mission. There have been several partners along the way. Can you tell us a little bit more about how many scientists are working on this? Yeah, so we have two incredible international partners, JAXA and CSA, and also the sample analysis team includes over 230 scientists from around the world who will really intensely work on studying some of the sample for the next two years. We'll also have three samples go to museums in the next couple months. So folks at home may have the opportunity to go and see the sample themselves at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., the University of Arizona Museum in Tucson, or at Space Center Houston right here in Texas. So exciting. So what does it mean for your team to have seen this clean room built from the ground up and now to see the sample in it? I'm sure it has to be so exciting. Oh, it's incredible. So this um, clean room was constructed very specifically for the OSIRIS-REx sample. Since the scientific goals of this mission are really tied to the building blocks of life and organics, organic contamination was a really detailed concern to us throughout the entire design and construction process and outfitting. So all, everything you see in this lab was carefully reviewed to make sure it wouldn't contaminate the sample so we can get the most scientific benefit out of this return. So can you tell us a little bit about how long it will take to fully reveal the sample and where the sample will live? Yeah, so the sample's permanent home is this lab behind us, um, but what will actually happen next is we'll continue taking the tag sim apart. So right now we have this incredible view of the sample into the tag sim. We're looking into the part that touched the asteroid Bennu. We're actually going to take those parts off to get a little further in so that we can then distribute that sample into um, bulk sample handling trays, which are triangular and look sort of like deep dish pizzas. And for scientists interested, how will they eventually be able to request a sample? So in about six months, we will release a sample catalog, which will give scientists from all around, even beyond the sample analysis team, um, enough information to start to think about what science questions they want to ask. And they can propose studies and specific quantities of sample they would like to use. And then those requests will be reviewed by a peer review allocation board. Um, and then um, those who are um, granted the, their requests will get samples in the next nine months or so. This is space time. Still to come, astronomers witness what happens when worlds collide and Spain reaches for the stars with its first domestically built rocket. All that and more still to come on Space Time.
astronomers have captured the first ever afterglow of a massive planetary collision between two worlds. The observations reported in the journal Nature show two ice giant exoplanets colliding with each other around a sun-like star, in the process creating a blaze of light and plumes of dust. The findings show the bright heat afterglow and resulting dust cloud which moved in front of the parent star, dimming its light over time. Astronomers were alerted to the event by a citizen scientist who noticed a strange stellar light curve and realised that something unusual was unfolding. The observations showed that the system doubled in brightness at infrared wavelengths some three Earth years before the star started to fade in visible light. One of the study's authors, Matthew Kenworthy from Leiden University, says the observations were a complete surprise. The star's been named Assassin 21QI after the network of telescopes that first detected the fading of the star at visible wavelengths. Astronomers think the most likely explanation for what they're seeing is that two ice giant exoplanets, planets similar in size to Neptune and Uranus, have collided, producing an infrared glow which has been detected by NASA's NEOWISE mission which uses a space telescope to hunt for asteroids and comets. The calculations and computer models indicate the temperature and size of the glowing material, as well as the amount of time the glows lasted, is all consistent with the collision of two ice giant exoplanets. The resulting expanding billowing debris cloud from the impact then travelled in front of the star some three Earth years later, causing the star's light to dim in brightness as visible from Earth. Over the next few years, this cloud of dust is expected to start smearing out along the orbit of the collision remnant, and a telltale scattering of light from this cloud could be detected both with ground-based telescopes and the Webb Space Telescope. It's even possible chunks of debris will accrete to begin forming a new planet, while other material may condense to form a retinue of moons that will orbit around the newly formed planet. And in fact, we know this has happened before. After all, that's what happened four and a half billion years ago in our solar system when a Mars-sized planet called Thea collided with the early proto-Earth, forming a magma ocean, which eventually accreted together to form the Earth, with debris and ejector flung up into orbit by the force of the impact, gradually coalescing to form the Moon. Astronomers plan on watching closely to see what happens next. Whatever it is, it'll be fascinating to observe future developments. This is Space Time. Still to come, Spain reaches for the stars with its first successful domestically launched rocket, and later in the science report, the oldest known human footprints ever found in the Americas. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Spain has launched its first locally built rocket, an important step in establishing its own orbital launch system. The 12-beta-tall Miura-1 was launched from a military base in the southern region of Andalusia by a private company, PLD Space. The suborbital ballistic test flight trajectory reached an altitude of 46 kilometres above the Gulf of Cadiz. Mission managers say the flight was successful, achieving all its technical objectives. After its five-minute flight, the launch vehicle eventually splashed down in the North Atlantic Ocean, where PLD Space planned to send a recovery team to retrieve it. 
Mira 1 is the first rocket built with 100% Spanish technology and is considered a successful milestone for Spanish research, development and innovation. The successful launch followed an earlier mission scrub back in May due to high winds and another in June when the umbilical cables providing fuel and power supply to the rocket failed to release and retract on time. Mira 1 is seen as the first step in the development of the Mira 5. It'll be a 35-metre-tall two-stage launch vehicle designed to place satellites weighing less than 500 kilograms into low-Earth orbit within two years. PLD Space say 70% of the components developed for the Miura 1 will be used for the Miura 5 launch vehicle. Once in commercial operation, Miura 5 will launch from the European Space Agency's Kourou spaceport in French Guiana. It'll be competing directly with New Zealand's Electron rocket in the fast-growing small satellite launch market. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study claims that drinking dark tea every day may help to mitigate type 2 diabetes risk and progression in adults through better blood sugar control. The findings presented at the annual meeting of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes suggest that compared with people who don't drink tea, daily consumers of dark tea had a 53% lower risk of pre-diabetes and a 47% reduced risk of type 2 diabetes, even after taking into account established risk factors known to drive the risk of diabetes. The authors caution that this was an observational study. The findings cannot prove that drinking black tea every day improves blood sugar control, but they do suggest that it is likely to contribute. A new study has shown that renting has a stronger link to faster biological ageing than unemployment or being a former smoker. The findings reported in the journal Epidemiology and Community Health used blood samples to measure people's biological age, that is, the cumulative damage to the body's tissues and cells. The results were then compared with subjects' housing situation. The researchers say that living in a privately rented home is associated with faster biological ageing compared to home ownership, and the association was almost double that of unemployment compared to employment. Repeatedly falling behind on rent and exposure to pollution were also associated with faster ageing. Anthropologists have used new dating techniques to confirm the age of ancient human footprints found in New Mexico, finding that they may be the oldest in the Americas. The tracks discovered in the White Sands National Park sparked controversy two years ago when scientists suggested the prints date back to around 22,000 years. Now, a report in the journal Science has found two other ways of dating the fossilised tracks are converging on similar ages as the first estimate. The findings add to mounting evidence that humans arrived in North America thousands of years earlier than previously thought. Back in 2021, scientists described more than 60 footprints embedded in what was once mud alongside an ancient lake in what's now New Mexico. Radiocarbon dating of aquatic plant seeds in and around the footprints suggest that people were roaming along there for some two millennia, between 23,000 and 21,000 years ago. 
The results add to other evidence, which is pushing back on the long-held theory that the first humans in North America came from Siberia by way of a land bridge around 16,000 to 14,000 years ago. However, other scientists have pointed out that the aquatic plants used for this latest study could have absorbed ancient carbon in groundwater, resulting in exaggerated age perspectives. So to add to their past work, the authors also radiocarbon-dated pollen stuck to the same layers as some of the footprints. The researchers also collected quartz grains above the lowered footprints and used a dating method that estimates how long that quartz been buried. The pollen yielded an age of roughly 23,400 to 22,600 years. And the quartz gave an age minimum of around 21,500 years. So, both results are echoing the previous age estimate. The dangers of lithium-ion batteries are becoming more apparent, with electric cars, e-bikes, community batteries, and even common household consumer electronics powered by them all becoming potential fire hazards. The ACCC has now issued a warning following a major recall. With the details, we're joined by technology editor Alex Harov-Royt from Tech Advice Start Life. The ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, has put out a warning for LG battery owners who have the solar-powered battery systems in their homes to immediately switch off these potentially dangerous LG solar batteries and contact LG for either a refund or a software update. And in fact, LG will even reimburse you for the energy that you weren't able to generate and store in your battery. The ACCC is warning that just because your battery system doesn't say the word LG on it doesn't mean that it doesn't have LG batteries inside. There's the uh, brands are LG itself, Solar X, Opal, Red Earth, Iguana, Ulvata. And these recalls have stretched back to the year 2000. The recalls are happening in the US as well. In fact, there's even one energy company in the US that is reusing recalled car batteries in its energy battery system, which to me is absolutely crazy. And in fact, the ACCC has also put out another warning just to people who are using lithium-ion batteries in general in their smartphones and tablets and electric tools, e-scooters, e-bikes, etc. And they're saying that these batteries can overheat and explode if they're used, charged, or disposed of incorrectly or if they're damaged. And you can imagine with things like uh, e-scooters that they can be quite roughly handled and thrown well, around. We and, saw you know, a people... fire in an e-scooter just the other day in King's Cross. This was a backpacker's hostel. And we saw a similar yes. incident in a community battery located in Rockhampton in Queensland where the same thing happened. Yes. And they were actually told to let the the fire burn out. Yeah, it didn't yeah. matter how much. That's right. Well, there's so you much uh, energy water, in these. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. And there's so much energy in these batteries. It, it really does have to burn itself out. In fact, if the fire is, you know, if the energy isn't all used, the fire can reignite. This happened in New York in an e-scooter shop. They were talking to somebody who said, look, it might restart in a couple of days. And it did exactly that. And so uh, part of the reason is because people are using third-party chargers. They're buying cheaper third-party batteries. And I mean, there've been 23 recalls affecting an estimated 89,000 products in the market. So the Lithium-ion batteries can be quite dangerous, and someone actually died. The toxic fumes that were spewing out like a jet of the burning battery. So it's really quite dangerous. Now, on my site, techadvice.life, I have a video interview with a gentleman called Charlie Welch from a company called ZapBat, Z-A-P. B-A-T-T.com. And he's developed lithium titanate batteries. These have been in use by the military and NASA for decades. Unfortunately, they've been much more expensive and uh, they didn't have the correct battery operating system or the, the voltages, but this has all been solved. The voltages can mimic lithium ion batteries. The price is coming down to be very similar to lithium ion. The batteries will recharge to full in less than 15 minutes. They have 15,000 
charge cycles, which equates to about 25 years of use, and then it only goes down to 90% of the charge capacities well, that, that can be used for... your solar panels on your roof. Well, it, it can be used for decades longer than traditional batteries, and if they get damaged, there's no thermal runaway reaction that causes this sort of fire. So in the future, these will be the standard batteries, and, and this problem will cease to be. But over the next two or three years, this problem is going to increase. More of these batteries are going to go bad, and there'll be more fires. And in fact, people are, are, are suggesting, don't charge your e-scooters in the house. Don't charge your golf. Don't charge your electric car in your garage. Make sure it's all done outside. As William Gibson, in uh, who the famous author of Neuromancer said, the future has already been invented. It just hasn't been widely distributed yet. Well, the future batteries that are going to charge in minutes to full and last decades are here and they're just being commercialised now, and, and within a decade, lithium-ion will just be a thing of the past. That's Alex Sahara-Vroid from TechAdvice.life. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 